You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Though we are redeemed by Christ, we still fight against sin in our lives and the church. In today's message, the political pastor addresses how we deal with sin as believers, the inexcusable preying on children, immodest women, young men in pornography, and the sin of leaders who fail young believers. Turn with us to Mark chapter 9 verses 42 through 50 as the sermon is delivered titled, Dealing with the Sin of Disciples. Mark chapter number 9, and we'll start our reading there in verse number 43, 42 this morning. Mark 9 and verse 42. The Bible says, And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but the salt becomes unsalty. With what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Now last week we saw that there are two sides, right? You're on one or the other. You're either a friend or foe of Jesus Christ. And today's passage is a continuation of that teaching of Christ that stemmed from the disciples having this dispute over which was greatest. Which one of these disciples was greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, as we continue in this teaching this morning, we're dealing with believers in this passage. I want you to understand that. And the sin that's being addressed here in Mark chapter 9 is the sin of disciples. Because though we are redeemed by Christ, we still fight against sin in our lives and we fight against sin in the church. It's that ongoing struggle that we sang about until that day when we are freed from sinning that we look forward to. Christ gives us victory over sin in this life, but we still have that presence of sin, don't we, in this world. And so we still battle with sin in our lives. Jesus' disciples demonstrated this propensity for sin when they showed regard for the greatest among them 
at the risk of disregarding the least among them. Think about it. If you're recognizing the greatest among the disciples, the greatest in the kingdom of God, who is the greatest? Who is it we're overlooking? We're overlooking the least, aren't we? And so that was the issue that Jesus had been addressing in his teaching here to the disciples. You know, a sure measure of your Christian maturity is how you treat the least of the believers. The newest, the most vulnerable of believers. How do you treat those? And woe to those of us who would lead the disciples of Jesus Christ into sin rather than lead them into sanctification. That's what Jesus is dealing with in this passage today. So we're dealing with the sins of the disciples. So in our passage today, we're going to see the stumbling disciples. We'll see the separating of disciples. We'll see some suffering disciples. And then we'll see some salting disciples. But notice in verse number 42, the stumbling disciples. Jesus said in verse 42, And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now remember, Jesus had started with an illustration to the disciples of a little child. He'd put a little child before them and used that as an illustration of accepting the least of these. And those whom we receive in his name, he says... I'll receive you. And if you receive me, you receive the Father. And so Jesus used this illustration of a child. Then we saw in Matthew's gospel in that account that Jesus is referring to us not just accepting little children, but accepting little children as far as believers or little children in the faith, accepting the least of these in the faith. And he's warning against causing those those little ones, the little ones in the faith, to stumble, to fall, to sin. So as we look at these stumbling disciples, Jesus talks about those who would be caused to be offended in some translations or to stumble or sin. The word that's used here in the Greek is the word skandalizo. And so you can sound that out and and think about it in the English terms. It sounds a lot like our word scandal, doesn't it? Well, that's what it is associated with. It's the idea of taking a snare and putting it in the way in order to trap something or trap someone. So you've laid a a snare, you put out a trip wire that's designed to cause someone to get tangled in it, to get caught in it. The idea here is you are causing these disciples to be tripped up. You're causing them to stumble. You're causing them to sin. You're offending them. Not an offense in the way we use it a lot these days because everybody's offended about something now, right? You can be offended about anything these days. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about causing someone to sin or stumble or be tripped up or fall into the trap or snare of sin. But you know, one of the greatest offenses in this world today, I believe, is to prey on children. I think that's why Jesus is using this illustration of a child before them and talking about these believers as though they're little children. One of the worst offenses I can think of in our world today is to prey on a child. And so you wonder why I harp on these subjects so much and why it burns me up. 
about these agendas, the LGBTQIA plus stuff, why it bothers me so bad and why I continue to talk about it, because I can't think of any greater offense than what these folks do in preying on our children. Presenting this sin in front of them and causing them to be led into a life of sin. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in this very passage. Woe to those who would do such a thing. So that's why it burns me up when we have drag shows and children present. While we have drag queen story hours in our libraries. But you know, whether it's hitting a child, neglecting a child, shaking a baby, aborting an unborn baby, or other such abuse, that's those actions that are a little bit hard to forgive, aren't they? They're hard. They're difficult. I can't think of much greater offense than to abuse a child. But it's also one of the greatest offenses to Christ when one of His children are abused in such a way. That we would take advantage of one of God's children. So Jesus likens them to little children as being new, young, or the least of the believers. He likens them to little children and that they are vulnerable to pray. They are the least when it comes to offering something or offering some benefit. They're very needy rather than having a whole lot to give at those early stages in their Christian walk. They're easily impressionable. At that stage, how many people have you seen come to Christ and in that early age, they're absorbing and grabbing everything they can get their hands on because they're hungry for Christ in those moments. And there are plenty of charlatans out there ready to peddle their wares and put it in front of these believers and cause them to be misguided and to stumble, to fall into false doctrine. This is the stage when these believers are not able to defend themselves quite yet. You know, a little child, you can teach them self-defense measures. And they can do so much to defend themselves. But you put a large enough human being who is totally untrained in the art of self-defense, and a small child just can't overcome the great size and weight of that larger person. That's just a fact, right? But it's true also of our young believers, of our new converts, of our young Christians, of those young in the faith, or maybe even literally children who are believers. They're not quite at the stage that they're ready to defend themselves yet. They still need some more learning and growing and training to equip them for the world in which they're going to be thrust, the struggles in which they're going to face. And it's our responsibility to protect them, defend them, and train them up and prepare them for what they're going to encounter. Heaven forbid that we'd simply throw them to the wolves and say, devour them. So we see the offended. But look at who the offender is in this passage. Jesus says in verse 42, and whoever causes one of these little ones, whoever, any one of you, even my disciples, Woe to you if you would be the one who would cause them to be tripped up. 
to stumble. Jesus is saying that we have a duty towards other believers. We have a duty towards their growth. And we have church leaders today making light of sin and even embracing sin. People like Andy Stanley off in Atlanta, you wonder how in the world could he become so misguided to the place that he is? And so now not only do they tolerate sin in their church, but they embrace it and encourage it. What are we doing to our young Christians? What are we doing to our new believers? How are we training up our children in the faith when our very leaders are chief among peddling this false doctrine? The ones who are entrusted with the care are abusing their positions. Leading people in the false doctrine like the prosperity movement, the prosperity so-called gospel. Or when we in our pulpits neglect the exposition of God's word in favor of stories and things that just tickle the ears of the people. Or designed perhaps to draw the crowds and draw the masses. We do that to the detriment of these little ones. We're not helping them. We're not benefiting them. We have a duty towards other believers. We have a duty to look towards their growth. But not only for their growth, but we have a duty towards other other believers so that they would not stumble, so they would not be caught in the scandal, so they would not be tripped up in the wire, so they wouldn't get caught in sin. Now, just some real talk and an illustration of this from today. We have young men, young Christian men, struggling in this pornographic world in which we live. They are bombarded by stuff on every side. Every opportunity is available. And then that young man is faced with a sister in the faith who won't cover herself. And they will say, well, that's the young man's problem. Shouldn't he be able to control himself? Shouldn't he restrain himself? Absolutely he should control himself. Absolutely he should restrain himself. But here's the question. Why in the world would a sister in the faith not want to aid her brother to be a godly man when he's faced with all the problems and struggles that that are affected by in this world? Why in the world would she not cease to aid him? And we don't understand that we have a responsibility towards one another to help one another in this Christian life. Why would she not want to aid him in sanctification, but rather lead him toward stumbling and sin? It's kind of like inviting a recovering alcoholic to come over to your place for just one drink. Or maybe go to that bar that they've frequented in the past, but... You're just going to meet them there. Why in the world would you put them in such a place that they'd be tempted by the problems that they've had? We have more of a duty than that, don't we? We understand that nature. So we must have regard for the weaker brother. Now, that always brings up a passage of Scripture. You might as well just stick something here in Mark chapter 9. We'll come back. But I want you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 because this one comes out a lot in this topic and I want to hit it real quick. I'm going to read through several verses. I just want to comment on a couple things. 
1 Corinthians chapter 8 deals with the liberty that we have in Christ. And we're dealing with levels of maturity here in the Christian walk. But 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1, just for some background. Paul says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks that he has known anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he has been known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. Now, so there's an issue at hand here, right? We We can gather this. It's over whether a Christian is okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed previously to idols. They are gods in many people's minds, but are they really God? They're not a real God. They're a fake God, a false God. So then the question is, does it really affect the meat? Is there really any reason why a believer couldn't eat that meat? Because he's not worshiping the idol himself. So that's the issue at hand. And there was... There was a dispute about this. So in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, there's all kinds of things that people worship, yet for us, verse 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, Not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. These are young converts. These are people who had previously worshipped idols. They've come out of this idolatrous practice. They now know Christ, but they're still having some issues because of all they've known. They're still having issues because they're new believers. So he says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. They knew that they used to make these sacrifices. They know what it's about. And for them to eat it was a problem. So verse number eight, Paul says, but food will not commend us to God. We neither lack if we do not eat nor abound if we do eat. There's no super spiritual thing about whether you're eating it or not. Here's Paul's conclusion. Verse 9. But see to it that this authority of yours does not somehow become, here it is, a stumbling block to the weak. Remember, this is the issue Jesus is addressing in Mark chapter 9. Becoming that stumbling block. Causing one to offend or to stumble. Verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be built up to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, that person sees you sitting there eating in the market, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and everyone knows it, and it's not a problem. There's nothing wrong with you doing that. You're absolutely entitled to do so. You know that the idol has no power. doesn't affect your walk with God. But that one who's a new convert sees this and he thinks he can eat, but in his mind when he eats it, what he what is he thinking? He thinks that it has something to do with idol worship. He's associating it with that thing. So now he's having a problem in his conscience because in his mind, he's worshiping the idol. 
the idol that he's broken away from. You see the problem? Verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And in that way, by sinning against the brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again ever so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul says it's that important that I not cause a problem for my brother. Now, here's where this gets misconstrued all the time. We'll hear super spiritual folks tell us this means that you need to honor all those legalistic Christians. I'm talking about those people who've been believers for years. But in their minds, they come up with this set of standards and rules that this is the way you're supposed to live. And if you don't do that, you're wrong. And they would bind you to their rules. And so we have this idea, well, I don't want to offend my brother. So I have to abstain from certain things because in his mind it's wrong. And I don't want to be offensive to him. That is not what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 8 at all. He's talking about the young convert associating these actions with his old life. And if he participates, that he believes he's living in that old life. For him, it's sinful. And he has to abstain from it. So to cause him to stumble, to cause him to fall, to affect his conscience, Paul says, I would never do that. This is one of my brothers, one from whom Christ died, and I have a responsibility and a duty to care for him. So if necessary, he said, I just won't ever eat meat again, if that's what it requires. So we see in the teachings of Christ, and we see in the teachings even of Paul, which are the teachings of Christ, that it's a big deal. It really does matter how we care for those young Christians, for the weaker brother for their growth, that they may not stumble, and that we protect them. Let me be real frank again. Our children are not intended to be missionaries in the public schools. You understand what I'm saying? There's this philosophy out there that you just take the children and you throw them into any environment. And then you say, well, how else are they going to hear if we don't put our kids in there? And we send our kids off to the public school and say, now go evangelize the school. I'm not saying a child won't lead another child to Christ. I'm not saying it won't happen. But let me tell you what we're doing. We're taking the young ones. We're taking those who are helpless at this point, those who are not prepared, those who are not ready and equipped and haven't grown up in the faith, and we're throwing them out there in the wolves because guess what? It's not just the students that they're coming in contact with. It's the, the adults, the parents, and the families that have affected the students they come into contact with. It's the teachers and the administration who are adults that they come into contact with. And what do we do? We throw our little ones out there while some adult stands before them and tell them, you evolved from a monkey. How is that child going to defend himself? How is that child going to argue with that adult in the classroom about his creator? Right? 
And when the teacher sets them down and tells them all, this is what a family might look like, how is that child going to defend himself? See? And we throw them to the wolves. Say, go be a missionary. You say, how absurd that anybody would think we would do such a thing. Yet, we do it all the time. And we'll do this with new believers in the same way, because that's the parallel Jesus is drawing here, right? You know, it's a very common practice in many churches, because so many are looking for workers and helpers to, to, you know, keep going all the many programs they think are required of a church. And so they have these youth programs and children's programs, and then they can't get anybody to work in it. So what happens? This new convert comes along. You know, it's the drug addict out here that just got saved. And they say, well, guess what? I bet he can relate to our teenagers. So let's make him the youth leader. And we put him in there because he can relate. And what happens to our youth? And what happens to that new believer that we've thrust into this place for which they were not prepared? We should, instead of setting them up for failure, protect, defend. And Jesus shows us how serious this is. Listen to his language there in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now this is how serious Jesus says the matter is. It would have been better off if this person had experienced this gruesome death before he could affect the little one rather than for him to have affected that little one and then need to be punished. It would have been better off if it never happened. It would have been better off if he had never lived than to live and lead one to sin. That's pretty strong. The millstone, the literal word here, is one that is turned by an ass. That's literally what it is. A donkey would have to pull and move this stone. It was so large, so big. This is not one that a person could pick up or carry around. So the idea was we're talking about a really large stone tied to the neck of this person and thrown off in the sea. What's the obvious result? They're going to drown. They're going to die. Jesus said it would be better for him to die this way, this horrible way, than to have lived to cause the little ones of God to sin. So God takes this pretty serious, doesn't he? So we see the stumbling disciples. Now I want you to see the separating disciples. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to go enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell in an unquenchable fire. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Then verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Now, Jesus moves from offending these little ones to yourself being offended. So moving from you're causing one to sin to there's something that's causing you to sin. What do you do with it? How do you address it? Jesus uses some figurative language here to teach us the seriousness 
of this issue. Jesus is not literally saying here, you guys need to go around cutting off your hands and your feet and gouging out your eyes. If we did this, there would not be a one of us that could do anything with our hands because we wouldn't have any left. We could not go anywhere with our feet because we'd have no feet and you wouldn't see anything because all of our eyes would be gouged out. No one would have drove over here this morning. Jesus is not literally saying, start mutilating your own body. But he is trying to get across the seriousness of this nature and there literally are some things that do need to be cut off. The word cut off here is used to say, uh, I smote it off or I cut it off. It's also used of cutting something loose. It could be used uh, to mean emasculate or castrate or mutilate. This is the word that Christ uses here. How many of us understand that there are some things in our lives and some relationships in our lives that need to be cut off, severed, so that they are impotent, they are powerless in our lives? Look at these three things that Jesus mentions. Hand, feet, eyes. So with the hand... We do things, right? We craft things. We make things. We do activities with the hands. What activities in your life set you up for sin? What things do you do that put you in a place where you're vulnerable or where you're tempted? You know, oftentimes it can actually be the lack of activity that's a problem. The Proverbs addresses that. Idle minds, right? All it takes is when you've got a little free time on your hand. When you have a little free time, you can get in all kinds of trouble, can't you? Usually we're better off when we're busy about something. But in our laziness or our idle time, we give opportunity for sinful activity. The hands. But what about the feet? The feet take us places, right? That's how we go where we go. So I'd ask you this morning, where are you going? Are you hanging out with the wrong people? Are you hanging out with those people that would cause you to live a life that's not pleasing to God? Are you hanging around those people who would tempt you towards sin or those who would lead you toward righteousness? Are you going to the wrong movies, listening to the wrong music, flooding your mind with the wrong things, the hand, the foot? But then Jesus says, the eye. Now, with the eye, we see. So think about it. What are those things that we are filling our lives and minds with that we see with the eyes? I think it's interesting that we associate hand and eye what? Coordination. Heard that? Hand-eye coordination. Because we can see it, now we can do it. Right? Because it's entered in our mind through our eyes, it tells our hand what to do. And they work in conjunction with one another, don't they? So for those who say it doesn't really matter what I watch, what I listen to, the images I see, as long as I'm not doing anything, well, what happens? It starts with the seeing, doesn't it? And then it results in the doing. That's why Jesus told us if a man looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart, 
He's committed adultery with her already. What happens? He saw, it went through the eyes, it led to an action. And that's the way it follows. Men especially, but not solely, struggle with this idea of our eyes, the images and things that we see. And the world is quick to give us plenty of those, isn't it? What are we looking on? You know, the Jews especially valued the body. They considered it in every part, every member of the body, to be a special gift of God. That it was to be enjoyed. Like, you don't take for granted your hand or your foot or your eye, but you recognize this hand I have, this is a gift from God. I should enjoy this hand. This foot is a gift from God, and you don't know until you almost lose one of those things, right? Or it gets injured, but you realize it's a gift from God. It's to be enjoyed. The eyes that He gave us are gifts from God. Though there are many images that would corrupt our minds, God created a world full of beauty, didn't He? that our eyes are able to behold and see and that reflect upon Him and that tells us of His goodness. And so the Jews would see the body in every member as a precious gift of God. And for Jesus to say, you should cut off one of those gifts if necessary, that was a shocking thing to say. To go through this life without my hand or my foot or my eyes, why in the world would I want to go through life that way? While it's not the most desirable thing, Jesus says that's more desirable to do that and live forever than to keep all of your extremities in this life and die forever. Which one is better off? In dealing with sin in disciples, there must be some separation that occurs. So thirdly, I want you to see not only the stumbling disciples, the separating disciples, but notice the suffering disciples. In verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled. And that might be some suffering in this life, right? Going through in this state. But he says crippled than having your two hands and going to hell into the unquenchable fire. That's some real suffering, isn't it? That's definitely the suffering that you don't want to experience. And Jesus repeats this same warning as He talks about the foot in verse 45. And then again in verse 47 as He talks about the eye. All three He talks about it's better to do without those parts than to have them and go to hell. So three times Christ tells us here, you don't want to go to hell. You don't want to go to hell. You do not want to go to hell. He's making a a real point here, isn't he? He's making a firm statement. Now, an interesting note in verse 48, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah Chapter number 66, and I'll get to that in just a moment. You'll notice, depending on the translation you're using, this same phrase is repeated in verse 44 and verse 46. Some of your translations probably don't have a 44 or 46 there at all. You might find that depending on which one you're carrying today. 
So why is that? Well, back when uh, the King James translators, for example, came around, the manuscripts that were available at that time included verses 44 and 46. Later discoveries of manuscripts that predated those did not include this statement in verse 44 and 46. However, they all did include verse 48. So the question here probably is this, did Jesus say this three times or one time? But it's not a question of did Jesus say this? He absolutely did say this, and it was a quotation from Isaiah chapter 66. So regardless, if you want to get into textual criticism, the fact remains Jesus Christ absolutely did make this statement from Isaiah chapter 66 that where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus is saying it's better to suffer loss of even physical body parts in this world than to spend an eternity in hell. And that's a word that you don't hear much this in this day and age unless it's used as a curse word. Very seldom do you hear anyone anymore warning people not to go to hell. You might hear them encouraging them to go, but you very seldom hear them being warned not to go. And Jesus repeatedly warned, you don't want to go there. The word that's used here is for a place called Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom. Now, some interesting history about this area. As you go back in the Old Testament days, you'll find the worship of the god Molech occurred in this Valley of Hinnom. Molech was this god, this great statue, that literally they would burn a fire around uh, this statue and place babies, small children, on the hands of this idol to be consumed with fire. They were killing their babies in worship of a false god, Molech. Now this shouldn't be too surprising because this same activity is still going on here in our country today where babies are being sacrificed, literally burned alive, depending on which process is used, in the womb or torn apart in the womb. You say, how despicable, and absolutely it is. When Josiah came along as king, he said that's despicable too, and there's not going to be any more worship of this god Molech in the Valley of Hinnom. And so he desecrated the place so that it wasn't considered a place that no one would want to worship anymore. And he turned the place into a garbage dump. And so from that time on, it was a a depository for your refuse, for your trash, for your garbage, even for your dead animals. I saw one of those on the way in today. I asked my wife, like, who's picking these things up anymore? I was told somebody didn't want to even pick them up. You know, the poor farmer had to drag his, his, you know, deceased animal out to the, uh, to the roadside. Well, Valley of Hinnom was the place where stuff like this went. Even people. So you had trash and you had bodies and a fire would be going to burn up this stuff and consume it. And as all this decaying matter was going on, sorry, I know it's not lunchtime yet, so you guys are still okay right now, all right? You haven't already eaten, so you're all right. But the worms were feasting on all this matter and helping in the process of decomposition and decay that was taking place. So you get the picture here, you got the worms eating on things, you've got fire burning and consuming things, and it's all decaying. Jesus uses this term, 
This is what he's referencing when he refers to hell. He says, there's a place like that valley where the person who's rejected me, the person who chose sin, will spend forever decaying, but never completely. The worm eats, but never eats it up. The fire burns, but never consumes. What's the picture he's giving? Of suffering, agony, pain that doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. Day after day, year after year, forever. Doesn't stop. Can you imagine? You don't hear a whole lot about hell being preached today. But hell is a place of real, unending suffering that's delivered up to the lake of fire at the end of all things for eternity. But you know that's spoken of by Jesus even more than He spoke of heaven? He spent more time talking about hell than He did heaven. For those people who say, well, Jesus is just this, you know, flippant, lovey-dovey kind of Savior who, you know, never condemned anyone and certainly wouldn't send anyone to hell, He spent more time talking about hell than He did heaven. He gave plenty of warnings on this subject. And He is the one who is the only escape from this place. You understand, every single one of us is totally deserving of hell. You'll hear people say this. Well, He can't really be the God you say He is. and He's not a loving God. He's not this and that if He would send anyone to hell. Let me tell you something. God is completely holy and just in what He does. He is sovereign in all of His ways. And whatever He does is absolutely right. It is right. If He sends anyone to hell, then He's absolutely right in sending them there. It is totally deserved. There is not one of us that could say, God sent me to hell and I didn't deserve it. Not a one of us could say it. He is the only way to escape. Let me quote to you actually from Isaiah 66, 24, because this quote that we have in our text is pretty much verbatim from Isaiah 66, but I'm going to give you just a little bit more context. I'm going to give you the whole verse. It says this, And they shall go out, and our brother read this this morning at the beginning of our service, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. You can see that picture of the Valley of Hinnom here, can't you? You can see the bodies there and the burning and the decay, but the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. It doesn't cease. And who is there? Who experiences this? Isaiah tells us. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Those who have rebelled against God, they are the ones who will experience this eternal judgment. 
There are those today who would love to make fun of anyone who would believe in such a God. They're quick to criticize, mock, even tempt. Beg God to do something or show Himself. Yet those who rebel will find themselves in a place that no one would ever desire. And it never ceases. The sufferings of following Christ in this life, though they're real, they pale, don't they, in comparison to eternity in a place like hell. Can't imagine. So finally, in our text today, we see that God tells us in verse 50, verse 49 and 50, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Finally, he shows us the salting disciples. Now, salt, as we know at this time, was very valuable. We know that even Roman soldiers at this time were often paid their wages in salt. So why we get our expression, being worth your salt? Well, it was literally done then. So it was a very precious thing used for many different, uh, many different things. And we understand all the different uses and ways that salt can be beneficial. But there are two properties that Jesus presents here in this passage of salt that we need to see. Because this is in addition to the other teachings of Christ on salt. We know that Christ said you're the salt of the earth, right? So we understand the influence and the effect that we as the body of Christ should have on this world. We are salt in that aspect. But do you realize that you're also salt? Not just salt of the earth, but you're the salt of the church. The salt of the church. Jesus talks about a purifying here in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is actually a difficult verse. Commentators actually have a hard time with this one, by the way. But we're going to try to tackle it a bit here. Everyone, he says, is going to be salted with fire. Now, there's a, a comparison being drawn. We've just seen the fire of, of Gehenna or the fire of hell, right? And those who suffer there who have rebelled against God. But every one of us go through some type of fire and salt. Now, you'll go through a fire for eternity and judgment Or if you're a follower of Christ now, you're going to go through some fire and some salting in this life. It's temporary, it's short, but it is a purifying agent. He is purifying his bride. Because salt and fire can actually be linked back to the Old Testament to the sacrifices that were being made. And we think of ourselves. As a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. We're told to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We are purified through the fire and through the salting that we experience in this life. Where Christ is sanctifying us. So we suffer in, in this life, but it preserves us for eternity. Versus suffering and destruction, right? We get the picture of the separation of the impurities from the pure, of the melting process that takes place in the furnace as the metal comes to a very hot point and it becomes liquefied and then what happens, the impurities begin to bubble up and float to the top so that you can 
pull the dross away, pull the impurities away. It's what's happening in our life. The process that we're going through as believers and Christ is building us up and sanctifying us and purifying us and making us a bride that's clean and pure and prepared for the bridegroom. But it not only is a purifying thing in our life, but verse 50 tells us it's a preserving thing. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty? Again, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is interesting. Have this salt in you and be at peace with one another, he says. Now remember, what kicked all this discussion off to start with, according to Mark's gospel? Well, the disciples had this dispute, didn't they? They were still trying to figure out who was the greatest among them. So there was this Debating, arguing going on. And Jesus says, you need to be salt and be at peace with one another. So we as salt in the church purify and preserve other disciples. Right? We're iron sharpening iron. We're encouraging one another. We're provoking one another to love and to good works, as the Bible tells us to do. It's why even we're given the process for discipline within the church, to keep the church pure and clean, because we still battle with this sin. That we would have peace in the church, not division over things like who's the greatest, who's the least, Not showing greater regard for those among us who can benefit us, but rather how we can be a benefit to others. So don't be a saltless disciple, all right? Don't be a saltless disciple, but rather contribute to the purifying and preserving of the church. Not the destruction, not the misleading. Not the abuse, not the abandonment. Disciples are not perfect in themselves by no means. We all struggle with sin. But may we never cause another one to stumble. May we separate ourselves from what would lead us to fall. May we embrace this present suffering and reject the everlasting suffering. And may we be some salty disciples. Amen? Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Father, we thank You for the Word today. We thank You for how You are purifying us and preserving us. We thank You that You use the one another's. That You use us to help and to teach. Father, may we never be the cause of stumbling. Even as You speak to our hearts today, God, Pray you would show us, show us ourselves, show us those areas of our life that would cause us to stumble. Give us strength. Help us to cut those things off, to eliminate them from our lives. You might be the priority.
Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an activity. God, forgive us today where those things have meant more to us than you. Those things of this world which entangle us, that cause us to stumble. God, forgive us where we've neglected the least of these. Help us to be faithful by your grace to train up a generation that loves you and serves you and honors you, upholds your word in all things. May we be salty disciples. And Father, I pray for those who have heard your word today, who despite it, remain in their rebellion. God, may they understand the realities of sin, the nature of punishment of sin. But today, may they trust in the sacrifice for their sin, Christ Jesus. God, you may save some soul today from that fiery eternity into eternal life. Lord, I pray you would guide the remainder of our service. We might honor and glorify you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.